Support for Lillo Podcasts comes from listeners like you who are masking up, maintaining social distance, and taking care of one another. DC for you. Back to another episode of DC for You. I am one of your hosts, Russell Sellers, and joining me, as always, is the illustrious co-owner, co-host, Mr. Todd Weber. Todd, how are you today? Uh, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I came to Man's World, and I'm I'm here to make a difference. Wonderful. And if all these little snips haven't uh, figured you out yet. This is going to be our DC post-crisis intervention episode two, where we are going to be taking a look at the post-crisis Wonder Woman, specifically the first nine issues of George Perez's epic late 80s run that started in, uh, in 1987, uh, actually a full year after Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, or just about a full year after Crisis on Infinite mm-hmm. Earths ended. So for a while there, Wonder Woman did not have a solo ongoing. Uh, she would actually not even make her first post-crisis uh, appearance in DC Comics for a year after Crisis on Infinite Earths, but it would be in the pages of the follow-up event, Legends, which we will probably briefly touch on in this episode uh, as this is not about that. This is specifically looking at the opening story arc that uh, was plotted by uh, very prolific, famous artist George Perez, uh, who did the covers and interiors of all of these issues, uh, as well as, as I mentioned, plotting them, and then uh, taking on a typically a scripter, like a, a more seasoned writer to do scripts for his uh, for his issues. And eventually, I think he does take over doing scripts himself, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, for uh, for the latter part of this. But in these first nine issues, he is joined uh, initially, I believe, by uh, – let's see. It was uh, uh, Greg – Bruce po- Potter. Uh, no, Greg, Greg Potter. Greg Potter, <laughs> who – Famously enough, uh, at DC is most known for the, his creation, Jim, the uh, son of Saturn. And this is a character that if you would be forgiven for not knowing who it is. Uh, he didn't really uh, make his mainstay DC appearance or his main continuity DC appearance until much later under the pen of Grant Morrison in JLA. But Jim, son of Saturn, created by uh, Greg Potter and artist uh famous marvel artist gene colon so those yeah i remember that that series on the shelves and then there were retcons aplenty down the road with that character they still it never really caught on but uh he he made some appearances in the ostrander mandrake 
Martian Manhunter series and tied him into the Martian origin. And then, of course, the uh, Morrison JLA. So, Jem, J-E-M-M. Yes, and unfortunately, that series is not available on DC Universe yet. But but when it is, uh, I will definitely be checking out because it sounds just weird enough uh, for me to be just entranced by it. But speaking of entranced... How about George Perez's uh, jump from being a an artist and kind of like uh, a co-writer of sorts on New Teen Titans to being the main plotter and artist on one of DC's mainstays? Uh, this was this was a huge leap for him. Yeah, it's a big high-profile thing for him. A lot of creative control. Of course, he had a uh, most favored nation status at dc he was if he was under contract to them or doing work his contract said that he had the highest page rate for any artist on in in the company so he was making money uh as a penciler more than anybody else plus then he gets to be the the co-plotter so he got that money george was doing just fine for himself back then uh and with good reason i mean he 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 was given the reins to this book this franchise and Updated it, but also really connected uh, Wonder Woman to to the Greek gods, and there's a lot of Greek gods in these issues. I was very appreciative of that because uh, if I I'm not super familiar with uh, Wonder Woman's adventures in you know the golden and silver ages of comics, but suffice it to say the character was kind of pulled into that whole uh, super friends role of mm-hmm. Wonder Woman is cleaning up and making food for yeah. the male members she, of the Justice she's League. She's the secretary. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what they made Wonder Woman into. And here comes George Perez saying, nope, not doing that. We are making Wonder Woman a full-fledged part of the DC Trinity as she is meant mm-hmm. to be. And if you're going to do that, then she needs to have the most epic origin story ever told and boy George Perez really went for it in that first issue um, yeah I was boy, unprepared that, is, <laughs> that that it's both I would say graphic or as far as uh, maybe a little bit um, brutal how about that yeah and edgy even so much so much plot and exposition I know I wonder you know if the Plotter, co-plotter change slash scripter change, you know, um, Len Wein comes in in issue three, if that's just because there's so much dialogue on these pages. They are crazy, uh, <laughs> if, you know, if, if they were uh, injuring the letterer or something. Uh, you might think, <laughs> like, I, I'm imagining the hand cramps this poor guy went through. Uh-huh. Uh, just, it's insane how much dialogue there is in all of this, but... I was never bored. That's the thing. No, no, usually, like usually, when a book like this is so text heavy and just so crammed, like you were saying, with exposition and so much backstory, I get bored. And I'm like, I don't want to just keep going with this. But the thing is, George Perez's plot and even the script uh, from from Greg Potter was actually done really well. I thought that they had a good flow. It keeps you interested. It sets up a uh, a pretty clear good guy, bad guy, like kind of dynamic. Like you, you see this from the Amazon's perspective, like from, uh, from the female perspective, which is kind of incredible considering this book is done nearly by all men with the exception of, uh, 
future Vertigo superstar Karen Berger, who was the editor at the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she would go on to bigger and better things. But I, I guess I had forgotten that she was the editor of this section or this this run. And uh, yeah, she's a superstar currently at Dark Horse. Um, but she she was the guiding hand on books like Sandman. And uh, I don't know if she was the actually she wasn't on Preacher, but a lot of the Vertigo stuff. And she was kind of thought of to to be the editor in chief of Vertigo in in deed, if not in name. And man, her fingerprints are all over this. Uh, there are times whenever this book, as we were uh, mentioning, gets a bit graphic because it it does something I didn't expect. I was thinking that maybe it would just jump right in with the specific origin of Diana and we would just kind of gloss over the origin of the Amazons. But we don't gloss over it at all. It takes up more than I think half of this first mm-hmm. issue of of Wonder Woman where you're going all the way back to the beginning of time to whenever the first caveman ever out of anger murdered his wife. And you see this like really crazy idea uh, of all the souls of women who were murdered by men kind of in this uh, limbo state who would be uh, uh, resurrected of a source, they would be reincarnated as mm-hmm. the, the new yeah, their souls. Yeah, their souls would be reincarnated as the new Amazonian race uh, created by the uh, the female gods, led primarily by Hera and Athena. Uh, some brilliant bits of storytelling in there that also got like, even more brutal than that. Whenever the Amazons are taking on the army of Hercules, which Man, I I was thrown for a loop in it, and I can see that at the time, kids may have even glossed over the fact that these women were being brutally beaten and raped by mm-hmm. by Hercules and his army. And but boy, do they get their vengeance! <laughs> uh, and it is it's pretty sweet, but it's also it's kind of bittersweet because you can't really give back what's taken. Uh, and they, they do address that in the book, and I, I've appreciated its forward thinkingness on that, but man, those were some brutal pages to read. Yeah, and the Hippolyta uh, all chained up and kind of her origin story as a leader uh, yeah. it does take up a big part of it, but it is it is rough. But and th- this was a newsstand book. This wasn't a, a direct market book or anything like that it doesn't i don't know if it has comics code authority on it or not but uh, uh it does yeah more more than i expected and that's man uh it, it is it's a heavy read there to begin with but then you when you finally get to the point when diana is sculpted from clay because that is the version of the origin they're using is she's not the mm-hmm. daughter of zeus or anything like that she is sculpted from clay and given life by uh by the gods and it's to me, it feels like a you know a pretty triumphant moment uh, for Hippolyta, who is actually I think it's written Hipp- Hippolyte in this version mm-hmm. throughout. But uh, of course, we would later uh, redo that and repronounce her name. And I, I do like Hippolyta uh, a lot better, uh, or Hippolyta. I think that that's a better pronunciation. Uh, yeah, I don't know uh, if it's more Greek or what. But I, I was at this time when I was reading it, I was still saying. Uh, Hippolyta, Hippolyta, I can't remember because because yeah. the uh, Golden Age. We should talk a little bit about what was going on with Wonder Woman pre-Crisis. There were there was of course an Earth Two Wonder Woman from the Justice Society of America in World War Two times, and 
that was the Sensation Comics version. And she eventually had a daughter uh, named Fury, and that character's name was Lyta, L-Y-T-A. So I always thought, okay, it must be pronounced Hapalita, but apparently not. Um, <laughs> and in Crisis, the contemporary or the Earth-1 Wonder Woman was just kind of uncreated at the end of uh, Crisis 12. And then, summarily, everybody forgot about her. And she she was just kind of, she never existed, really. And then, uh, which set the stage for George to bring her back in Wonder Woman number one slash Legends. So, so yeah, uh, pronunciation issues aside, I think I had, the only issues I had was there's so many bloody characters. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, female or otherwise. There's so many uh, to keep track of goddesses, Amazons. You do your best and you try to remember who the, the important ones are. Um, but much of it is just, OK, all right, this character has these traits. And I'm, luckily, the names are used almost on every page. You know, if there's a there's a dialogue referring to someone, they're they're calling them by name, which helps a lot. But uh, yeah, uh, great origin issue and it ends ends with the reveal of well we should talk about the contest too yeah uh an issue classic wonder woman trope uh, yeah absolutely like you you always get that in pretty much every wonder woman or every diana is going to go to man's world uh it's all pretty much done the same way if you've seen the movie uh or the 2009 animated film which is tremendous and actually takes mm-hmm. a lot from this run uh for its story yeah. uh you know that Eventually, Steve Trevor, uh, Air Force pilot, uh, crash lands on Themyscira, the uh, the hidden island of the Amazons, and they have to pick a champion amongst them to escort him back to Man's World and to kind of be the emissary of Themyscira to Man's World. Um, uh, initially, and this it always goes this way too. Hippolyta uh, denies her daughter entry into this tournament, uh, but Diana is headstrong and gets in it anyway by covering her face because as is the case in this, uh, in this telling of it, all of the Amazons competing for it, have their faces covered. You can't tell who's who, uh, which is a good, you know, I think that that's a good explanation instead of, uh, here's the mystery Amazon. How are you going to have a mystery Amazon? Everybody yeah. knows everybody on this Island. Yeah, exactly. Well, that doesn't work. You're like, if you're going to do it, you need to do it by face covering. And I think that, you know, there's a good, explanation reason for that in that these are all sisters and I think by some light implication they may also be potentially lovers and you don't want somebody, well, yeah. you don't want somebody seeing the face of someone that they have strong feelings for like being able to manipulate them into not doing their best so it's it, like cover the face and everybody is on equal footing it feels like and I, not that I remember a whole lot pre-crisis but this is a big power upgrade or at least a uh, a badass level up for the Amazons as a whole. Oh, you know, yeah. they are they are really presented as strong here and um not needing men at all, which is great. And and uh I, the contest is very short, but it does get to the explanation of of the champion Diana getting her um elements, you know, her bracelets, the the lasso Actually, she doesn't get the lasso in issue one, I don't believe. Uh, she does have it by issue two. Yeah. Uh, like the, um, uh, they talk about the girdle. Yeah, the, the girdle of Gaia, like made from uh, 
uh, Gaia herself, or I believe. And yeah, she gets the lasso and she pretty much gets all of her armor and everything in issue two. Um, or she gets uh, the lasso anyway in issue two uh, as a gift directly from uh, or shot to her via bow and arrow by uh, Hermes, I believe. And of course, it was made by Hephaestus, uh, the uh, the Greek god of the forge. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot happening in the background of this too, because it's not just uh, Diana wins this tournament; she gets to go to Man's World. There's another big story at play, and it plays out over the course of these uh, the first six issues. Uh, which, if you're at all familiar with the movie versions of Wonder Woman and even mm-hmm. uh, the cartoons, you know that Ares is going to wind up being the main villain for her, at least in this uh, these first few issues. Um, and the portrayal of Ares in this version of Wonder Woman story, I really dug it. I really loved how he is... He is totally out for himself. He he's basically doing his you know blustering uh, god of war thing that says, "I can rule mankind better than the gods have. Like the gods have done nothing uh, worthwhile, and I am superior to all of them. And now I'm going to go out there and I'm going to prove it to you." And and they they don't overexpose him no. until you know they they it's kind of a slow build up, a slow reveal. We see him in issue one, but. Uh, we see mostly his minions working for him in two to two through five. Yeah, his sons. Cool. And you see, uh, uh, Phobos and Demos. Uh, uh-huh. They are they are kind of the lackeys doing Ares' bidding, but they uh, they're kind of in business for themselves too. They're each trying to stand out for their father, uh, and I wind up getting them uh, confused a bit. But uh, but one of them sends. Uh, the uh, demigoddess decay uh, to to take on uh, Wonder Woman and some of the people that are helping her when she's in Man's World, and that's uh, that's a little mini arc within that actually has consequences going forward for a while, and uh, gives Wonder Woman another uh, villain to actually get like physical with, which I thought mm-hmm. was was uh, was really cool. But um, Ares is the main antagonist of this uh first story arc yeah and it's it's all his influence like everything that's happening is being influenced by him he's trying to kick off a nuclear war because like people who worship war are people who are going to be like feeding him and making him more mm-hmm. powerful so it's uh that's really what it's about for aries he's uh he's the villain that in some ways is kind of evil for its own sake but he's also he's just power hungry and I, this is a, a, I don't want to say a trope, but I don't think I put it together or was exposed to this concept until around this time. And of course with Sandman, but the, the gods are only as powerful as the belief they get, you know, the prayers and the sacrifices and the beliefs they get make them more powerful and some more sustaining. So that, that's the Ares's, uh, or is it Ares? I don't know. His, his, overall arching plan um and if i can believe hermes gives diana flight yes and uh was it aphrodite or who gives the uh who gives her the the artemis i'm sorry artemis the hunter gives her the the lasso so but it it is definitely forged by hephaestus i can't say it um there's also this character uh, Harmonia, who is also the daughter of 
Ares, yes? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Like she's, but I think she sides with the Amazons. Uh, right. And so she's kind of um, a turncoat, but the there's the MacGuffin of her amulet or talisman that's split in two. And Ares has one part, Diana has one part, and that kind of moves the plot forward throughout it. Uh, yeah, there are there are so many moving pieces to this plot, and it's it sounds super complicated the way that we're explaining it. Mm-hmm. But as you're reading it, it all just falls into place, like it all just makes sense, and uh, it's like you're putting together a piece, uh, different pieces of a puzzle. And as you put those pieces in place, the picture starts to become clearer and easier to to follow and understand. Um, but I was like, let's just kind of backing up a little bit. I was about five years old or so whenever this series began. So I was definitely not going to be into it because uh, a five-year-old is going to be like, oh, girls, I don't want to read that, you know, mm-hmm. the, the typical childish thing. Um, but you were probably about 15 or so, uh, right? 14, 15 years old when this came out. So uh, were you like on top of it whenever this series launched or was this you something know- you came to later? I was a, a huge George Pérez fan even then, especially from Titans. And even though it was coming out, I was not buying it for a while. I did not buy or get into it until John Byrne took over uh, late in the middle of the run. And that, that kind of fit my preferences at the time. Now I went back and I bought them all and read them. And so I have a big long box full of this full run. But I also have the... Omnibuy. There are three Wonder Woman omnibus collections with George Pettis uh, art. So I am a big fan, but at the time it was kind of just all right. I'm I'm I'll kind of keep abreast of what's going on in books like Who's Who and if she goes to JLA. I was I wasn't buying. I was at that time. I think I was still doing more Marvel than DC at this particular juncture. Um, still reading the Bwahaha and the Titans for the most part in, in DC, but mostly, and, and of course the Burn Superman, um, mostly I was in, in Marvel X-Men land as a buyer. And that makes sense. There was a lot of that really cool stuff happening at that time. I mean, the Claremont run on X-Men was still mm-hmm. going like full tilt. Uh, but this would become, you know, as we said, a very storied run later on. But just like we always do in post-crisis intervention, we are talking about the big changes that occurred uh, to Wonder Woman uh, or occurred to the character that we're discussing versus like what they were prior to crisis. Now, we've touched on some of it, and I'm glad that you brought up both uh, her ability to fly and the JLA because both of these things were two big changes to Wonder Woman that uh, she hadn't had or something – one she hadn't had and another was taken away from her. Uh, in this uh, in this current timeline, so first is the ability to fly. Uh, up to now, uh, Wonder Woman had been getting around in the invisible jet. That was the big thing in Super Friends. That was a big thing in like any of her, uh, especially the yeah. Sil- Silver Age stuff. That's how she got around because she did not have the ability to fly. George Perez comes along and says, "Well, that's stupid. She's she's supposed to be the female equivalent of Superman, and she has access to all these powers from the gods. Most of them fly. Why can't she?" So he's like, I'll fix that right now. And yeah, level uh, up. yeah, like she levels up big time and has the ability to fly. She no longer has need of the invisible jet. And personally, I kind of dig that. I like, I'm, I always thought the invisible jet was kind of silly. Uh, it was a trope of its time, but uh, Wonder Woman with the ability to fly just works so much better for me personally. 
Uh, yeah, I agree with that. And like I said, it, it, it powers her up. It gives her uh, more of an equivalency with Superman. And if we're going to present her, and I mean, it also gives Batman a little bit more of, of an agency. If you look at, or not agency, but uh, a reason uh, stands apart a little bit. He's the guy that has to fly or in a plane to keep up with them. Uh, if we're looking big picture, of course, we're not getting a lot of those Trinity stories at this point in DC, but, no. but uh, yeah, it, it levels her up and gives her uh, more of a, affinity with superman and if we go to i believe it's action comics 600 there's the first meeting canonically of of uh clark and diana and they are presented as equals and they are even attracted to each other which is a very big difference but that's more in the, the pages of superman but it is still uh had george Perez influence on it if we ever get to that point we would we'll check that out because oh, sure. they're both kind of presented as newcomers, and it's their first meeting, and they kiss. This is the first thing they do. Spoiler alert. Yeah, that's – and that was the thing. Like Wonder Woman uh, likes Superman, and we'll get into this whenever we do uh, John Burns' Superman. Uh, she's having pretty much all of her history thrown out and completely rewritten. Uh, yeah. That's, oh, big time. That's something that – as we talked about in our last episode uh, about The Flash, about uh, specifically Wally West, they didn't really throw out history in that. They kept most of it, or if not all of it, intact. And it's getting referenced by Wally as he's going forward. He remembers, you know, having a childhood growing up as Kid Flash. This version of Wonder Woman has never existed to him, so all of those memories would have to be, like, wiped away, you would, you would imagine, just like they would be wiped away from any other character who may have known her. Uh, and going forward uh that also erases one big piece of her character she is no longer a founding member of the JLA right uh, right uh, they they ended up redoing the whole JLA origin which is which was somewhat controversial and they they told that story in JLA year 1 if i don't know if you've read that book by Mark Wade and Barry Kitson I, I have i think it's very good uh she was oh, great. she was uh replaced on the team by Black Canary yeah. and uh as I also remember it, like Superman and Batman aren't really founding members of the JLA either. This is a completely different roster. Um, yeah. Green Lantern, Flash, Aquaman, uh, kind of the second tier of heroes, the non-Trinity. And they're, they're kind of presented as the heart. And then they recruit the more powerful members later. And I remember that it that, that story or that retcon debuted in the pages of the Secret Origins book. If you've ever seen those, those are still – many of them are on. Uh, DC DC Unlimited, I keep saying it, DC Universe, but um, not all. But I believe the JLA retcon origin is on there. Uh, I believe so, and I do believe that JLA Year One is on there if uh, if people want to go check mm-hmm. that oh, out. Definitely. And it's a, it's a really great story. I highly recommend that one. But it's – the part of me kind of hated that uh, – Diana was erased as a founding member, but I also kind of hated that, you know, Batman and Superman were erased as founding members of the JLA, but I understood the, the reasoning behind doing it. You're trying to establish these other characters as, uh, equally important to them because they're the ones who were going to have pulled together the justice league in the first place. So you want to give them a higher profile. This is, this is a good way to do it. Uh, and, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, their profiles weren't going anywhere. They were already, like, really exploding at the time. And especially since, you know, over in Batman, you were about to have uh, uh, Frank Miller's year one mm-hmm. that was going to, like, completely uh, 
upend everything. Not necessarily upend everything about him, but it was going to uh, to change a good bit. Uh, and, and and bring more mainstream attention to comics themselves. So looking at at them revitalizing, trying to revitalize Wonder Woman and Superman at the same time, raise that level, raise that profile, at least for the books. You know, um, I think they, they did that. I, I would agree. I, I think that especially the profile for Wonder Woman, it feels like uh, – her profile got a big boost from from what George Perez is doing here. He's he has figured out uh, you know this great uh, method for like bringing Diana into the mainstream, into uh, modern continuity, and giving her that kind of update that uh, that I think people were were clamoring for. And you can tell that he was also trying to aim the book at. At women, he was like, you know, women should mm-hmm. enjoy superheroes as well. And the sensibilities of this run are kind of geared towards that because there are whole issues where there is nary a punch thrown. It is, it is people talking. It is like events taking place. Like the plot is always moving forward. It's never just like people sitting around uh, like a coffee table or something, just chatting and being, <laughs> and being boring. No, there's always something happening. Uh, it's just not necessarily always an action-oriented book. And I very much appreciated that George uh, had the courage to to try something like that, especially in this at this moment when DC is being completely reinvented and they're trying to get you know more readers engaged. They're trying to like, keep you interested. But here comes George with the you don't always have to do that with the fighty fight and the punchy punch. You can you can actually create engaging and interesting characters uh, through like just conversations and through things happening in their lives, and people will want to read it. And I think that time has proven him correct. It definitely holds up. You know, you can go back and say, well, what's the earliest Wonder Woman stories worth reading? And you can, you can go to here and, and this, this is a good answer. There are some other, I would say some uh, bronze age stuff that people hold up very highly, but I can't tell you the exact names of them, but I, I, I know that there are some well thought of storylines, but this is where people go to when they want to start learning about the character. Of course, there've been great runs from Greg Rucka to Azarello uh, to, G. Willow Wilson's run, but this is where you kind of you you think the modern take started and the readable is what I want to say the readable Wonder Woman um, the, the the start of that era. I think that's uh, I think that's a very fair thing to say that if you want something that's readable and honestly ahead of its time because this does not really feel like an '80s comic to me most of the time. Uh, this is where you start. You just go to Wonder Woman, like find that Wonder Woman series, uh, starting at Wonder Woman number one from 19, it'll say 1986 on DC Universe. Uh, or maybe, I don't know when people are hearing this, it may be DC Universe Infinite by then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you're in 2002, uh, 2021, yeah, uh, DC Universe Infinite, that app. But uh, yeah, it came out in October of 86. And so we'd had just a, about six months after Crisis. If we think about that, yeah, it's it takes a little time for this to get going, uh, but as much time as they spend 
in the Greek gods world, one thing that we haven't really talked about, as I, I was alluding to, like other characters that George created for this, mm-hmm. he also gives uh, Wonder Woman some new allies in Man's World, besides just uh, Steve Trevor and Etta Candy, who are both uh, prominent figures throughout uh, this yeah. story. Yeah, those those are the kind of the lifelong what you think of her supporting cast going back to Golden Age. Those two. Yeah, but you also get uh, Professor Julia. Uh, Capitellus, Capitellus, uh, Capitellus, yep. or Capitellus? Yep, Greek uh, pre- uh, at Harvard, I believe. Is that where yeah, she's at? Yeah, she's a she is a Harvard University professor who's kind of an expert on Greek culture, history, and language. Uh, she's arche- sort of an archaeologist, maybe uh, in mm-hmm. a way that I felt like it wasn't really that specific, but she was kind of given an Indiana Jones sort of uh, spin, but without the. Uh, like bullwhip hat and like going on big adventures. She's, uh, she's definitely more of a, I'm in the library reading type. Yeah. She's um, in her books. Definitely. Uh, Great character though. I enjoyed I, that perspective of this single mom, older, uh, person we get to meet Diana through her eyes, I think is the way it uh, works for me. But you know, she's our POV character for a lot of this. Oh, absolutely. Like she is, she's given that whole fantastical, Oh my God, I am meeting somebody who is, like confirming that the Greek pantheon actually exists. And that is a mind blowing moment for this professor Uh, and her uh, at first insufferable daughter, Nessie, uh, who eventually uh, goes through some, some real hard stuff. uh, Yeah. We talked, we mentioned decay earlier and, uh, and when Nessie encounters decay, she winds up being aged into like her eighties. I think. Yeah, I thought they would keep that going a little bit longer. And in fact, it's not until I think issue seven or eight that that they undo that. But yeah, uh, I think it's issue aged up pretty quickly. I think that's issue seven that she undoes it because uh, we'll talk about issue eight in a minute because that was the Mm -hmm. only time whenever I felt like I was just like, woo, having a hard time getting through the issue because it was such a slog. Uh, But uh, one other character that, that the text page. Yeah, it's yeah. it's the yeah. it's just blocks and blocks of text uh, because it's the it's the info dump issue where they try to catch mm-hmm. up to everything that has been going on in DC outside this book. Uh, but then you also get uh, Mindy Meyer, who is a publicist, who uh, really honestly she gives you a bad impression at first because it sounds like she's really just out to exploit Wonder Woman for her own game. And she is, but uh, another thing that George Perez does really well is he makes her a pretty complicated character. He gives her uh, moments where she does genuinely really good things for for Wonder Woman and for uh, for Julia and for others. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she shows that she's not just totally out for herself, um, but ultimately she she really does look out for herself in a lot of ways. And it's uh, like I said, it just makes her a very complex character and one that you find interesting. And uh, while in one panel, she'll be giving Diana some, uh, some really good insight into how man's world works and how she can uh, adjust to it. And then the next uh, she's pissing Diana off to the point where she flies away. (laughs) And that's, yeah, it's an interesting story tweak, you know, to have, well, I want to get my message of sisterhood and peace out. So, uh, let's hire this publicist who actually came, comes to them and says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to make money off of you. And then the Amazons actually convinced Diana to go, go ahead with it. 
Yeah, that that was the crazy thing. But she does. I found that to be really interesting. Like after the the stuff with Ares is over, Wonder Woman is trying to to still be part of man's world. She's trying to decide if this is where she really wants to be or not. Um, and Mindy is like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to get you like all sorts of TV interviews, magazine interviews. And yeah, Wonder Woman is actually featured on the covers of all these different magazines. She's got like newspaper articles, TV interviews. I mean, she's really going for it. And, yeah. uh, it's it's kind of an incredible thing to see. I'm like, this is a really interesting story beat about how they're building Diana's profile to the mainstream, to uh, to the uh, average person, so that she's uh, as accessible to them as, say, like Superman was to maybe the the Daily Planet. Like, mm-hmm. they're they're trying to make her that level of superhero instead of you know the more Batman take where he's uh, skulking in the shadows and is thought of thought of by some people as a, like a rumor or a, an urban legend. Uh, so I, right. I appreciate – Opposite of somebody needing publicity. He doesn't want it. Yeah. Uh, it takes away his edge. We we should talk about the city of Boston is kind of a it, – it, it's her window into man's world. It, it's using her – as her base of operations, you know. Batman has Gotham, Superman has Metropolis, Wonder Woman has Paradise Island, Themyscira, but in America she's in Boston. And and there's what do we think of when we think Boston? We think history, uh, military, maybe maybe as far as historic battles and things like that. So it gives her that tie. Plus, just the research aspect. You know, the the best researchers are are in it, Yale, Harvard, not Yale. I'm sorry, Harvard in in Boston, and so. Connecting her to that city as a base is, is an interesting choice. Um, they don't create a fictitious city for her. And I, I'm unfamiliar with the Silver Age if that was the case, if she had a, a base of operations that was not based on a real city. You're starting to see that more and more in D.C. at this point uh, with Firestorm and based very squarely in New York City and uh, Justice League, at least before the crisis in Detroit. You know, you're seeing real cities as bases of operations for these characters instead of making up um, a city and then having to explain, well, why is there New York and Metropolis? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like we're, we're taking a little page out of the Marvel playbook by trying to make it more right. of the world outside your window, but also still trying to keep what made DC different from Marvel by having its fictitious cities that couldn't possibly exist anywhere. <laughs> uh, and I kind of appreciate that. I, I do like that she's in Boston. I've also enjoyed when Wonder Woman has been based in Washington, D.C., which I thought was a uh, uh, a really sensible place for her character to be, uh, given what she is or what she's supposed to represent. Right. Uh, since she, and that's, I think, ties in more to the secret identity, though. Yeah. So when, when she was, especially with the TV show, the Linda Carter TV show, she's working for the Department of Defense, Um that Diana Prince is is squarely in the government, but here we don't have that. We we have just we have no secret identity. We just have Diana. That's another change. But we do get the Diana Prince angle because uh, Mindy yep. Meyer calls her that, uh, or gives her a last name of Prince, uh, which was just kind of an out of nowhere blink and you'll miss it moment that has yeah. very little to no consequence on the story, but it is a thing that still happens. Uh, it does. It does. I got that too. You know, it's like, well, are they, is she going to use that down the road or are we just saying here concretely things are different? No, <laughs> I don't need to hide. 
Yeah, and I like that better. I think that for certain characters at this time in both DC and Marvel, secret identity still made sense. You could still use that trope and it would work. But I think for a character like Wonder Woman, a secret identity is a – it's really a moot point. It doesn't It doesn't fit her character. It doesn't – like who is she really trying to protect, you know? And if you suss – out the whole secret identity thing, which I think we'll talk about more when we get into uh, to Superman. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't really work, even in this day, even in the day and age that this is happening in. A secret identity doesn't really fit the nature of their characters, considering how much is known of them, uh, without people knowing their actual like like given names. And that's that's something that I'm glad George did not even attempt in this telling of Wonder Woman. He was like, I am not even going to bother with a secret identity. I am just going to tell Wonder Woman's story. And she is, she is Wonder Woman 24 seven. That, that makes her more interesting because I felt like the challenges that she's being faced with, like trying to understand man's world, uh, is more interesting if she's basically a fish out of water or a, a, a God or a goddess out of heaven, if you will. <laughs> like yeah. she, uh, that makes her infinitely more interesting to me. Like if she had a secret identity, this book would not have worked. I agree with that. Uh, I, you know, we should take a look at kind of the big picture and compare this to where flash was. If we're, we're taking our, our concept seriously, how does this compare and contrast with that? Um, I think the pro- there's a sense of propulsion with this. It's a lot stronger, tighter narrative. Uh, definitely, you could see it's very well thought out and and hitting the marks. It feels yeah. like that. Um, you know what this? But yeah, there's still, like you said, there's still lulls here and there. You know, there's that issue, that catch up and breathe issue. Yeah, where it's... we met Mindy Mayer. It's a very very Teen Titans issue. If if I um, recall, um, you know, there were a lot of Titans issues that were like that back in the day. Yeah, issue eight was really the yep. one that was a struggle for me because there's no, there's no real dialogue in it for a long time. It's just uh, Julia basically writing a memoir, like writing letters. You also have Mindy writing her own letters to right. Diana, and that's Etta writes one. It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like uh, everybody gives their own perspective. But yeah, it's uh, there's very little dialogue or anything going on outside of those i don't want to say scripts but uh, it does tie in legends we find out about gordon godfrey and diana meeting the other dc heroes is explained i mean it's nice because the first seven issues there was mention of superman but there was very little dc um interaction it was letting this story breathe on its own this character establish herself on, on her own, which was great. Which was much better than my, how Mike Barron's Flash run right. wound up. Because uh, as we talked about last episode, editorial interference with the Millennium event that comes in and just kind of like derails what Mike Barron had going. Just as he's picking up momentum, he gets shoved into that. Wonder Woman does not suffer from that. She does not suffer that whole event thing. Issue eight is where they cover it. They actually do talk, as you mentioned, G. Gordon Godfrey gets mentioned in that with the uh, Legends event. They also cover, mm-hmm. I believe, they cover Millennium in that too. And it's just—I well, like, don't know if they do. Um, do they, I, I don't I'm think that's sh- until another couple months later, until uh, after the challenge of the yeah, guns. I uh, think. Yeah, it might not be, but you get 
you still get like all this stuff, all these events like covered in a very quick kind of catch up way. And if you want, like if you read legends instead, like if you just read those first six issues of wonder woman or first seven issues of wonder woman, and then jump over and read legends, read that event and then come back to wonder woman, just, just skip to issue nine because <laughs> you've because you've you've issue seen eight, it. Issue nine is more uh, cheetah. Cheetah comes in. Yes, right? uh, you get the uh, this version of Barbara Minerva is uh, is really the only version of the of that character I've ever known. I I, I know her as an archaeologist, as somebody who was. Uh, trying to cure her own ailments and also had an obsession with getting Diana's uh, lasso of truth. And that was, mm-hmm. uh, that's the version of the character I've always known. Do you, do you have any familiarity with her? Like silver age, bronze age? Uh, not, not really. Uh, super friends. She was fast. That's what that's. Yeah. That's, <laughs> what is she does? She's fast. That's it. She didn't have um, much of a character as, as I recall it. Uh, like any time that I saw her in like Super Friends or whatever else, she was just another mustache twirling villain. If she had a mustache, mm-hmm. or I guess a whisker twirling villain in this case. Yeah, I, that that is correct as far as I I recall. And putting her in groups like Secret Society of Supervillains and uh, TV shows like Super Friends, she she basically is just there as I don't know that there's anything unique to Wonder Woman about the pre-crisis Cheetah. You know, um, here she has personal vendetta after a while. She wants that lasso and they create that this almost the the cheetah is a, a different person from her. If we get to it, you know, the, a different being that she knows about, but she's not in control as the cheetah. It's like this uh, demigod or something. Yeah, there's a lot more going on. And uh, in these first nine issues that we cover, we don't get super deep on Barbara uh, Minerva. Uh, She's introduced. We see the cheetah for the first time. But a lot of that plot thread is just kind of left out there dangling because issue 10 uh, actually kicks off uh, an event in Wonder Woman. So we decided that, you know, nine issues is where we should stop because uh, getting into this, I think it's – I think you called it right. I think it is the challenge of the gods. Yeah. War of gods is like uh, early nineties. So, and that was a more DC yeah. cross company event that yeah. was poorly executed. We, we will maybe get there. This is within wonder woman. It feels almost like, I want to say a reboot, but maybe an editorial mandate. Let's put more attention on this book. Cause it's, if you look at issue 10, it's really presented like a big, big deal. Yeah, it's uh, it's clear from the cover that they're meaning this to be like a massive attention-grabbing story arc. Like this is the mm-hmm. next big thing that's about to happen to Wonder Woman. But these first nine issues really set the table in a big way. I felt like it really established Diana as a character. It gave her, you know, an incredibly good supporting cast. The artwork is just jaw-droppingly good. Uh, I mean, if you've seen, like, everybody knows George Perez is a great artist. He's a master. Like, if you've seen. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. If you've read his uh, his work on uh, New Teen Titans, you already know that this dude is head and shoulders above just about everybody else in the game, especially in 1986. Uh, yeah, and this is just more examples of how good he really is. Uh, but you know, big big ups to uh, to Bruce Patterson, the inker uh, on this oh, book yeah. too, because he. He's adding some serious depth and detail to uh, to some of this stuff. I've never really found myself just staring at a page of falling rocks before, but 
there was a, an issue in this uh, in this series where I found myself doing that. I was just looking at a panel of falling rocks and thinking, my God, the level of detail in this. That is – that's the power of the art on this series. And to me, that's that's another thing that just sets it like far and above uh, so many other series uh, going on at the same time. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find something better than this at DC or, uh, around this era. <laughs> I, I think it's really good and really consistent uh, for yes. a long time. You know, you compare Burn on Superman, uh, kind of flamed, I don't want to say flamed out, but it, it was a very short era, relatively speaking. This kind of took took Wonder Woman all the way to the Morrison JLA without too many significant changes. Uh, of course, Perez is gone after a few years, but... Um, you get more. I, I think they you, you associate the character with the Brian Bolland covers, and uh, as far as bringing her profile in, though they they don't do any major changes to the character for a long, long time. The Greek angle is just still very, very prominent. You they continue to add uh, super villains and uh, maybe crossing her over a little bit more. You know, have her. I'm trying to think if she's she's there. She's obviously there with the death of Superman storyline yeah. and. And, and things like that, the big events in DC. But when I think the Perez run, I think uh, just that it's it was very sustained for a long while. And I gotta say, it, it was better than Flash, and Flash wasn't bad. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Like we we started, I think, with a good a good piece, like a good opener with Flash, uh, because that was. That has some editorial issues going on, but overall, Mike Barron was creating something that was entertaining and something that uh, that I legitimately enjoyed reading, even if it did uh, get pulled in a few wild directions at times. But with Wonder Woman, it was like, oh, my God, this is what consistency feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Flash was issue to issue. Uh, you never know what you're going to get issue to issue. Um, and I don't mean quality. I mean storyline. This is focused. This is going somewhere. Um, it's it's kind of like here. Here we go. WCW in the '90s versus WWE in the late '90s. Yeah. Um, every every page, every plot point means something and is tightly is going somewhere that you may not know yet, but stick around. It will. Uh, nothing is wasted. Yeah. There's. You don't feel like you're wasting your time or that like there's wasted space at, at any point, and that's. That's just the mark of master uh, master storytellers. They they know what they're doing. They know what mission they set out uh, for at the outset, and they are executing their plan. And it's it's evident on every page and every panel. So if you're looking for something that gives you a not only a great taste of what DC characters can and probably should be, but also a way of just just telling good stories, just telling you something that's engaging and going to keep you entertained. Uh, this is where you should go. Uh, between this and a few other, uh, you know, big changes like big stories and big, uh, big comic series that we're going to touch on a little bit later. But uh, I guess my I've given my overall take there. Uh, there are you know some little minor negatives here and there because sometimes we said that this. There can be a lot of words on pages at times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. Something else that bugged me was the uh, unfortunate racial stereotype of Barbara Minerva's assistant. Yeah, that's his. It's funny because his speech is very different from his inner monologue. 
like his inner monologue uh, speaks normally as like you and I are now. And then whenever he actually talks it, I read it in like a Louisiana accent, which is weird thing to say. I read it in a Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, that's that's how it it comes off. And I I was like, man, this is some stereotyping that really does not age well. But but at the same time, I get where they're going with it. I just feel like if you were going to do this in the modern context, you would not do this. Uh, You you really would run into some problems with with that characterization. But I do. Yeah, that. (laughs) <laughs> that would be definitely wiped away. Yeah, it just it, not a good uh, not a good look uh, for old George Perez or Lynn Wein. But uh, you know, this is this is one of those cases where it's so cool to see a a guy who's mostly known as an artist, a guy who's done a lot of good work there, uh, gets to show off that he can tell a good story uh, on an somewhat on his own. Like he's still got a scripter in there to, to write out the dialogue, but as a storyteller, George Perez, like I think ascends and reaches that next level with this series. Uh, his, yeah, without question. Uh, so that's, that's another reason to, to really get into this, especially if you were like a teen, like a new teen Titans fan, like you've read that wonder woman should really be where you go next, because this is, this is the evolution of George Perez from, uh, from a craftsman to a master, and that is that is really the the highest praise that I can I can heap onto uh, to any book. So I'm very glad that we chose to do this book next. I had never read these first nine issues. I had never read any of George Perez's Wonder Woman before di- diving into this. And uh, even though I know we're going to have another reading assignment for our next uh, series for our next episode. I really want to just keep going with this because it was just so good. Uh, yeah, I do. I want to kind of see where it's going from here and the intrigue of the God stuff and uh, introducing more villains and what's going on with Mindy Mayer. And uh, yeah, it, it, and I care about these characters. I mean, really well drawn or well created uh, supporting cast and the, I'm not going to say a novelty, but it's just enjoyable to watch her come into her own yeah. as, as a, an emissary to man's world and learning all about all these things. And it's totally, I buy it. You know, it, yeah. it's a, it's a great take on her. Uh, that's exactly where I'm at too. I think this was, this is one of those uh, times where I'm like, I got to keep going with this series. So I'm just going to like add it to my, uh, my regular reading list each, uh, each week. So I will, I will just be diving into, to more wonder woman, but uh want to hear what you guys think. So if you've read this series, if you uh, have some answers to the things that we didn't necessarily have uh, on this episode, if you want to just talk Wonder Woman, if you want to tell us, like, what should we be going for next after this? Um, you know, hit us up on the old Twitter machine at Lil Low Podcasts on Twitter. You can also hit me up at Russell underscore Sellers on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Todd, where are they finding you? I'm on Twitter at Todd Weber Guitar. And on Instagram, if you want to follow me, I have recently uh, finished up with my Hawaiian shirts project. Uh, So uh, you can follow me at Guitars of Green on Instagram. It is a private account, but there's nothing salacious there. I just don't want all the spam. So (laughs) check check it out. And uh, yeah, uh, see, see you guys out there. I'd love to hear your feedback on this run, what you think about it. And uh Maybe some suggestions for some other stuff in this time period. I think I'm I'm looking forward personally to things like Suicide Squad, Justice League, 
um, <clears throat> Titans, Superman, of course, and maybe any other post-crisis experiments that we can talk about here on the intervention. Absolutely. Uh, and with that, I think we're going to uh, we're going to move into something that we alluded to earlier in uh, in the episode. We're going to move on to uh, Superman next, uh, the character who also underwent a pretty dramatic amount of change from his uh, silver and bronze age, honestly, from his golden age all the way to the post-crisis uh, era of Superman. Uh, we're going to get into that because we're going to talk about uh, John Byrne's uh, six-issue Man of Steel, the miniseries that rewrote Superman's history for the modern era. Uh, lots of big things happened in that uh, that series. It is an all-timer classic, and we're going to talk all about that one on the next uh, post-crisis intervention. So with that, folks, thank you for joining us again on another little old episode of DC for you. This has been the post-crisis intervention and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.